I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. On your mark. Get set. Welcome to Now Playing's Fast and Furious Retrospective Series. It's gonna be an all-time of the night. Bet you're gonna enjoy this. Hosted by Arnie. Look, man, I don't just think outside the box. I tear it up. It's my thing. Stuart. You're the last person in the world I expected to show up. And Jacob. Like it or not, you and your friends are a part of it now. I don't have friends. I got family. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers, harsh language, and incentive to drive beyond the posted speed limit. I'm going to enjoy whatever Listener discretion is advised. Only live once. Let's do it. Talking over race. Today we're discussing The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift Starring Lucas Black Bow Wow Sung Kang Directed by Justin Lin This is Arnie, but you can just call me PK Podcast King Stuart in LA And this is the Justin Timberlake of now playing Jacob You really are a prima donna, you know that (laughs) Just so hard to work with Yes, if only our listeners knew The demands I make. (laughs) Yeah, right? Only orange (laughs) M&Ms. And speaking of demands, I think we have some demands of our own to make of our listeners, because our Kickstarter is down to the last full week. We need to go fast. We need to go furious if we want to cross the finish line. I don't want to skid out like Orange Julius in Too Fast, Too Furious. I want to make it across that finish line, and I want to do it like I'm... Vin Diesel and really blow past it with our stretch goals. I almost said Paul Walker, but I don't want to do anything like Paul Walker. (laughs) And I don't even want to reference Fast and the Furious when I talk about underrated movies, because that is the subject of the book. I look at it as an opportunity to bring movies that probably we will never have the opportunity to record on. And it would be great to be able to share these films, to have the camaraderie we do on the show, in print form, to have something solid in a book would be great. To have it in an audiobook would be great. If we could just make this happen, it requires money. And I know it's a lot of money. I was shocked when I saw the sticker price. Arnie, I know you were too. But every dime of this is going to make this dream happen. It's the only way it's going to become a reality, is if you join us on our homepage, click the banner at the top of the page, and Kickstarter, the now-playing underrated movies book. Yeah, when people see that price tag, I know I was shocked. Don't think that this means, like, we're going to be sitting around just throwing money in the air like some of these characters in the Fast and the Furious franchise, and we're going to be betting it on street races, and the four of us authors are going to be racing for the money. No. I don't think uh, we're going to get any of the money. I think (laughs) it's all going to go to lawyers and illustrators. And editors. We want this to be a professional production. Like, well, like some of the films we reviewed. They're not all professional, but yeah, we want this to look good. We want it to read well. We want it to not get us sued by talking about films, and we want to have some pictures in there. We want a full pack 
package to give to our fans, to give them another avenue to enjoy what you're enjoying now on this podcast. And guess what? You're not going to get just a franchise. You're going to get, well, not just 100 reviews, really 300 reviews. Each of us, Arnie, Marjorie, Stuart, myself, we're going to review 25 films, refill our underrated, but then two of the hosts, just like the format of this podcast, are going to give some mini reviews for those films too. So 300 reviews. Yeah, just like the show, there's always the fan of the movie. That's the whole reason we're doing it, right? It's the fan is here, and he's going to champion the film. And then there's two more, and sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. But that's what the book is, is trying to take Now Playing, and really everything we've done, even to the point of the DVD-ROM set, is so ethereal. It's all zeros and ones. This takes Now Playing and makes it solid. It's something you can put on your coffee table. It's something you can put on your bookshelf. If we hit that first stretch goal, we'll actually have a printed book. And I can't believe it much it costs to print a book. And the difference between those two costs, it's just the cost to print the book and a little bit extra art. And we're trying to just make this happen and take now playing to that next level and bring the quality we try to bring to every show and everything we do. Those few of you who got the DVD-ROM set, no, we went to the nth level to bring a professionally packaged DVD-ROM set with great art on the cover, great art on the discs, inserts, everything. Every show we do, we bring the best we can to the credits, to the editing. We don't just sleepwalk through this show. We want to bring that level of professionalism to the book, and that costs money. Anyone can sit to a word processor and spit out a PDF. We want to bring you a book that's of the quality of our show. And to do that, we really need your help. So please head to our website, go there very fast, drift right on over to that banner and click it because we're down to the last full week. We want you to help us make it. So thank you in advance. And speaking of taking things to a whole new level and making it real, Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious, basically rebooting in part three, right? I mean, there's no ties here the previous movies we're going to go to a new country we're going to have a new bland blonde hero i mean totally new way to take this franchise universal said the stars are the cars and that's where they went next did paul walker want to come back i take it they didn't want him was he trying to get in this their statement was they didn't even approach him because he's too old wow wow see i was right about baby scarface See, I don't know. This is sounds like spin to me. I think they would have loved if Vin Diesel said, oh, you know, I want to be in this. And Paul Walker says, yeah, me too. I think that they would have found the money for this. This looks like the last gasp, frankly, where the previous movie made too much money not to make another one. But with nobody coming back to this, I'm just surprised it got a theatrical release. This looks like the kind of thing that would go straight to DVD. It wasn't a cheap movie to make. They didn't scrimp on the budget. They spent $85 million on this thing. Wow. They buy the actual cars? A lot of cases, yes. And keep in mind, four cars for every one you see on screen. Three to beat up and one to use. Wow. You're right. I mean, once I see the movie, I have a different impression. But on the outside, finding out that none of the stars are returning, a newbie director is coming in on this. A new screenwriter. It just sounds like the kind of sad, pathetic little thing. I'm thinking about Poltergeist 3, where it's just Carol Ann and <laughs> Tangina running around like the Sears Tower. This seems to me like there's barely anything left of the franchise to make. And even though I've never seen these, like, I know the reputation of this one. This one's supposed to be like the big joke. 
I find that hard to believe after seeing two. But yeah. like, I even made jokes about drifting. Now, I know what drifting is because I played Mario Kart. But, you know, I'd make <laughs> jokes about drifting, specifically referencing Tokyo Drift, because there's supposed to be some ridiculous drifting going on. That's just the reputation. Like, this one's supposed to be real dumb. Yeah. As I mentioned last week, this is the one I didn't see in theaters because nothing in this made me want to come back to this franchise in the trailers. And part two was so abysmal. But I thought this would be really bad funny. And one day it was on HBO and I turned it on and Marjorie's like, why are you watching that? I'm like, two reasons. One, I think this is going to be so bad it's good. And two, I heard a rumor. I couldn't even confirm it because nobody saw this fucking movie. <laughs> but I heard a rumor that Vin Diesel came back and I wanted to know how they pulled that off. So I watched this on HBO one afternoon. Marjorie would walk in, see a few scenes, roll her eyes, laugh about the Drift King. <laughs> and walk back out <laughs> now i know what drifting is too and Stuart, you do too if you recall because one of those times i took you driving over those uh speed bumps i drifted <laughs> i don't remember using the word drift no i actually called it uh fishtailing and losing control <laughs> that's different than a drift <laughs> that's reckless driving starsky and hutch i believe was the reference at the time <laughs> i did tear a hole in my tire sideways jeez I was drifting around a corner trying to get to work really fast. Not, again, calling it drifting, just calling it a fast turn using the handbrake. And then I came out to two flat tires. And when they looked down, they're like, how'd you do this? They were ripped sideways. <laughs> I'm like, um, I think that was when I turned. And I did drift one other time. There was a time I bent over to pick up a CD while driving 82 down a freeway and then came back up. I was literally going into the side of a mountain. <laughs> and so I drifted 720 degrees. I am never driving with you. I think it's advisable. <laughs> I was a lot younger then. You were a horrendous driver in your late teens. But yes, somewhat better now. I went through a lot of tires. As many tires as Sean goes through in this movie, I went through on my first two cars. Is this even real? Like, I remember laughing when I saw the trailer for this, that, like, the cars weren't even going to go fast. They were just going to go sideways. Like, you can do this with a car? Yes, absolutely. I sat through the most boring one-hour documentary of my life. A bonus feature on this disc. This is an up-and-coming change in racing, and it is coming out of the Asian culture, where apparently it just started one guy to try to go faster in the turns, started to basically use the brake and spin out a little bit that's why you do it in mario kart and the audiences were so enthralled with the turns it didn't matter if he won or lost he was the star of it for the way he took those turns and it just became its own thing and here's the most impressive thing about this entire movie most of the driving here is legit there is a drift king his title is drift king and they got him there and they thought they'd have to cgi some of this or fake it he's like no i can do that that thing where they're driving down the ramp four inches away from the ramp side, that is the real Drift King driving that car. Come on, when that car drifts uphill around that whole parking lot, is that real? That's what I want to know. There are some CGI trickery, and you can tell when the camera work comes, but 90% of the drifting in this film is 100% legit, done by real drift racers. And... If you really want to find out about drift racing, I don't think you do, but it was the worst <laughs> bonus feature I ever had to sit through for now playing because I just don't care, but it did show me drift racing and a bunch of up and coming and how it's making its way to America, partially as a result of this film, but it was a thing before this film that they decided they wanted to add a new visual dynamic, what is going on in the real world of racing that we can bring in, and drifting was it. 
I will say I applaud them for trying to do something different. We're not going to get an undercover cop this time. Yeah, we're changing up the style. We're not doing drag racing because those other two films haven't really worked for me. I do like the fact that we're going to try to change it up here. Maybe it will work for me now. A lot of this could be credited to the screenwriter, but also the director, Justin Lin. And are either of you familiar with Justin Lin? He's become a big name. He's going to be doing Star Trek. He's going to be doing the next Bourne film. And this is where he got his main start. The only thing I know about Better Luck Tomorrow was that it bizarrely premiered at Sundance Film Festival, even though I don't think of Sundance hosting this kind of genre. It's a gangster film, basically. And one of the members of the audience after the screening heckled Justin Lin and said, why would you as an Asian present this as your culture? And Roger Ebert famously shouted this person down and said Asians have the right to make whatever they want. And it was a real heroic moment for Roger Ebert and for Justin Lin. It appeared in the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself. That's all I really knew about the movie. Everyone was loving his defense of it, but nobody really talked about the movie itself. I never saw it. I went and I watched it. I was partially curious just to see where Justin Lin came from. What was it in that movie that would get him Tokyo Drift? A short straw? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who would want to be doing Tokyo Drift? This is not a career in a sense. Well, that's true, especially with no stars. This one probably had a really <laughs> low bar. Yeah, this would suck. He's like, oh shit, I have to do a third Fast and the Furious without Vin or Paul Walker. But there's something else, and I told you that for most of these Fast and Furious movies, I'd be discussing the prequel work. Justin Lin backdoored a character from Better Luck Tomorrow into this. Oh, really? Which character? Han, played by Soon Kang. Oh, yeah. Han was one of the main characters in Better Luck Tomorrow, and that takes place in America. And he approached Soon Kang about being in this, and Soon Kang's like, why don't I just be Han again? And it is, in Justin Lin's mind, the same Han, and there are little callbacks with this character to things in Better Luck Tomorrow. So technically, in Justin Lin and Sung Kang's mind, Better Luck Tomorrow is in the same reality as Fast and Furious. Oh, well, given how much I've loved the previous two Fast and the Furious, should I just keep speeding along, or would you recommend I stop and watch the movie? There is absolutely nothing in that movie that relates at all to anything in Fast and the Furious. It is a high school drama. There is a crime element that comes in in the second act. Oh, I thought it was a gangster movie. No, not really. High school. High school kids who get into some illicit activities and things continue to escalate. But yeah, it's actually really well done. I watched it the same week I watched Too Fast, Too Furious and Tokyo Drift. And I can easily say it's the best movie I watched that weekend. But yet there's no racing cars. There's no thumping rap beats, even though it was distributed by MTV Films because it was a film about adolescence that adolescents could relate to, I thought it was remarkably well done. Not the greatest film in the world. I don't give it a strong recommend, but I definitely, I did a full review on the Venganza Media Gazette yesterday. I say check it out, but not if you want another Fast and Furious film. Okay, well, fair enough, but that's interesting. I definitely noted that there was a different person behind the camera didn't know Justin Lin's work but you can see it in the final product yeah I mean in that movie Han was one of the kids who started doing criminal activity and forming their own gang on campus and basically in this movie Han says you know how in the western films cowboys have to run to Mexico Tokyo is his Mexico so it's implied he fled to Mexico after the events of that film 
I did pick up on that line, and yeah, it did seem there was a payoff by the end. So yeah, that's why I went back and watched that other film, but no, no racing cars, no thumping beats, nothing in that film makes me go, that's the guy to do the next Fast and Furious movie. (laughs) He's no John Singleton. How many speeding tickets has he gotten? Maybe that's all it really takes. Arnie, give him the plot, we can get into this. Forget everything you know. This is a totally new Fast and Furious film with a totally new cast. And our new star is 17-year-old high school student Sean Boswell, played by Lucas Black. The boy's gotten into trouble repeatedly for racing his cars, forcing his mother to move to five different cities. But a race in Arizona is the final straw. Sean is being sent to Tokyo to live with his estranged father, who's stationed in Japan. Going to the new school, Sean quickly falls back into his racing ways, but realizes racing on the crowded streets of Japan is a new game. It's all about the drift. Which, per wiki, in case we didn't describe it well enough, a driving technique where the driver intentionally oversteers, causing loss of traction in the rear wheels or all tires, while maintaining control from entry to exit of a corner. Maintaining control, that's what's different between your drifts and the one in this film, Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) All right, yes. I did have a drift on that one turn I made. I maintained control and made my turn when I tore the tires up. But normally, yeah, that thing you don't want your car to do, these guys make an art of it. And no one is better at it than Drift King Takashi, played by Brian T. He's the nephew of a Yakuza lord and runs the small-time criminal activities in the Tokyo High School, along with his hood Morimoto and Agent Han, Sung Kang reprising his role from Better Luck Tomorrow. Han gives Sean a car to race, and Sean quickly demolishes it as he's never drifted before. In exchange for the lost vehicle, Sean starts to work for Han as a mob collector, and Han also teaches Sean to drift. But at school, Sean makes friends with Twinkie, Bow Wow, and starts to romance Natalie Kelly's character Neela, who happens to be DK's girl. Tensions escalate and come to a head when DK's uncle Kamada, played by kung fu legend Sonny Chiba, finds out Han is stealing from the Yakuza. A car chase ends with Han dead and Sean wanted for aiding in the theft. But Sean offers Uncle Kamada a deal. He will race DK and the loser must leave Tokyo. Kamada agrees and DK and Sean have a drift race down the side of a mountain, a race Sean wins when DK loses control and falls off the side of a cliff. But he lives, because it's PG-13. Victorious, Sean gets the girl and stays in Tokyo, crowned the new Drift King, when a challenger comes in the form of Vin Diesel. Again, playing Dominic Toretto, he says he and Han were like family, and Dom and Sean begin their race as credits roll. So, I think this one makes clear what a lot of the directors have said in their commentaries before. They view the Fast and the Furious as the modern westerns. Rob Cohen was saying that the harpooning of the semi-trucks was like the robbing of a stagecoach. And here we have a movie with a showdown where the loser must leave town. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about how they were hanging Indians in effigy at this football (laughs) rally. I was a little confused. I mean, the title is Tokyo Drift. I'm expecting us to be in Japan. And so that we're in an Arizona high school with high security and there's a Southern kid that clearly he's new in town, right? That's why he doesn't fit in and he doesn't like the jocks that are there. There's People are very excited about their football and he just doesn't get it. I was shocked. I, I thought the nemesis of this film was going to be, who? Like, tool time Zachary Bryan, like, all the grunts there. And this is the second time we've had Zachary Ty Bryan as a villain in our films, lest we forget the rage carry, too. Oh, I did. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a very unexpected opening to this film. It's our introduction to Lucas Black, an actor who I didn't really know. Did either of you really follow him? I didn't follow him, but I knew him. I'm a big fan of Sling Blade. I remember the child actor in that. He played opposite Billy Bob Thornton pretty memorably. I noticed before I saw the movie that it was this kid all grown up. So I had that image in my mind when I saw him. But I don't know that I would have known that otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Sling Blade back when it was new. Didn't remember him in it. I mean, I just don't know this actor from honestly anything, even though I've seen him in a few other things. So yet again, another warning sign that this movie is racing straight to tape. I mean... They couldn't have thought that Lucas Black was going to get anybody into the theater. Look, I I don't know Lucas Black from Paul Walker, but at least early on, I like Lucas Black's performance way better than anything Paul has done in those previous two films. Like, And he doesn't do a whole lot of talking. It's mostly looks. And Stuart, you said with that first film, you wanted that James Dean rubble without a cause. I kind of get that from this Sean character. He's hitting on this girl, even though he's the new kid. He's not the jock. And I like his performance early on. When he doesn't have to talk and he just has to kind of act like the rebel, he does a great job. Oh, yeah, I'm with you. I'll go one step beyond. Not only is he better than Paul Walker, I mean, yeah, he passes that with flying colors. <laughs> it smokes that car. But I would say he is easily the most charismatic character that is yet to appear in a Fast and the Furious movie. I'm so happy that he's the star. I'm going to have to disagree with you guys. It's like that race between Dom and Brian in the first Fast and the Furious movie. I think that Lucas Black beats Paul Walker, but it's just by a nose. I mean, this guy is bland. His southern accent, it's just way too stereotypical. It's not stereotypical. That's really his accent. How rare is it that you have an actor that actually gets to play southern? Unless the movie is set in the south, I don't think I ever see an actor with a southern accent unless it's got Matthew McConaughey in it. Admittedly, I'm not saying he's affecting the accent, but I just don't necessarily ever hook onto Sean, and I don't think he's the most charismatic actor in this movie, let alone in this franchise. Well, the more he has to speak and not just do cool looks, yeah, he does go down. Still way better than anything Paul has done at this point. Yes, he's better than Paul. I will grant better than Paul, but it's eerily similar in how I feel about Sean here and how I feel about Brian O'Connor in those previous two films. I didn't know whether the home improvement kid and his blonde girlfriend, I thought in some weird way the script was going to try to make them go to Japan with him. I'm like, how are they going to pull this (laughs) off when they're here in this incomplete housing complex racing towards who's going to get to take her to prom. And I'm just thinking, how can she be the girl? How can he be the villain if this is going to drift over to Tokyo very soon? I love this opening race. I think this is one of the best races in the franchise as far as it goes. This through the housing development and the slutty blonde, like, winner gets me. Yeah, later on, she's like, I thought you loved me, and (laughs) makes Zachary Bryan hit the gas a little harder. Yeah, this is the best race I think we've seen. And he goes through an in-construction house and does some more Dukes of Hazard shit. I mean... Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a lot of fun in this race, and Zachary Ty Bryan, he can't act worth a damn, but these cars are good, and that blonde can act. And I gotta say, this is the PSA moment, right? Like, this thing comes to a horrible conclusion. Like, I was scared. 
when Clay and Cindy, the the jock and his girlfriend, they crash like into the cylinder pillar, yeah, and like that car is demolished. Like I, I'm like, ooh, are they dead? Like, are they gonna die from it? Like, it's horrendous. I really feel like kids don't do this at home. This is what will happen to you. Yeah. Later on, we see all three of these people at a police station, and I'm like. You know, they all needed to go and at least get checked out for whiplash. They might have some dural hematomas. I do love Sean flashing that bloody grin at Cindy, though. <laughs> it had a fight club feel. Nobody take naps. They're all on concussion watch. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> this race was really good. The impact was really affecting and filled with quirky details. Like, I love the fact that he's, even though he's the winner, Sean, like, flips. And there's this slow-mo shot of him and his side of his car with a bottle of hot sauce for some reason. <laughs> I love the Tabasco, yes. <laughs> I think they CGI'd that in, and it's just so... Why does he have Tabasco in his car? It's things like this that make me really fall in love with a genre piece, you know, because B-movies, they're formula. They're going to be predictable. It's all the times you can show me something I wouldn't have guessed happening. Tabasco in the backseat is a perfect example of a movie that finds little ways to keep surprising, even though the formula, it's obvious. I mean, we all know that this kid is going to be kicked out of school and his only recourse is going to be going to Japan. I could figure that before it's even suggested by the cops and his mom. But Tabasco, never in a million years. <laughs> I don't know that I see him going to Japan. I still see him going to the ER because that is a hellacious role. His car... This is not going to be resurrected later on in the film like so many Fast and Furious cars we've seen. And the soundtrack here, we've kind of been at odds with the music. You bring Kid Rock Bodded a Ball, I am into this race. And I actually turned up the subwoofer so much my iPad that I used to take notes shook off my table. I will say I'm not a Kid Rock fan, but I didn't recognize this as a Kid Rock song but it fit this race, so I will compliment it with that, that they picked the right song for the right race. I didn't even notice the music in this, but I did know Two Weeks, a DJ Shadow song that kicked off the beginning of this. And yeah, the music is going to be one of the many things I'm going to say is the best we've seen yet in Fast and the Furious franchise. But yeah, this movie is called Tokyo Drift. We're not going to spend too long in the beginning. I'm not even sure how the mom sweet talks him out of charges, because they're talking about sending him to jail, trying him as an adult. I don't think it normally works... Hey, I'm going to send him to Japan. It did look like she's ready to blow that cop to get him off the charges. It's the Paul Walker clause. You could walk away from any crime that you do if you do something else that they want you to do. Oral included. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 12 minutes and we're there looking at MC Hammer Hawking Electronics. Now there's a reason for Hammer. Hammer is the reason Justin Lin was able to get Better Luck Tomorrow done. He was short on funding. And wrote a letter to the only celebrity he'd ever met, MC Hammer. And for all his financial woes, Hammer had the money. Wow. Talk about the right timing, because that dude's got no money. <laughs> yeah, so because of Hammer, Better Luck Tomorrow happened, and Lynn pays him back. Hammer is all over Japan. Wow. Okay, see, I just thought that that was an example of, yeah, you know these celebrities that we think have gone away, and then... In a different country, they're still there and considered big stars still. I thought that was a perfect way of setting an environment that was going to feel very surreal for our main character. He's no longer in America. He will not return in America for the rest of the movie. And he's the last guy I would expect to flourish in Tokyo here. But 
Yeah, it's a great setup, really. I mean, Southern boy on his last chance, stuck in Tokyo. I'm really impressed that they filmed this in Tokyo, and it shows. Not everything's Tokyo. There is some fakery because Tokyo apparently real strict about what they'll let you film, what they'll let you do. They did some of this Leprechaun 3 on the Vegas Strip style. (laughs) Yeah, they'd have to pixelate any pubes in the film. (laughs) And they also couldn't obviously race in Japan where they could in L.A., so they did some CGI there. But most of this filmed in Japan. All the exterior dialogue scenes filmed in Tokyo, and it just adds a lot of this to the character. I'm starting to understand what you say, Stuart, when you say you like movies about a place. That he gets to his dad's apartment and this thing's a closet and he opens the window and there's an, it's into another apartment. And there's an old woman eating noodles. Yeah. No, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Atmosphere. It's everything. I mean, when things are boring and formulaic, you spice it up by including things you haven't seen before. And this movie is showing a lot that I suspect audiences wouldn't have seen before. I mean, this is a purview into a Japan that is unusual. I mean, we do see the neon, right, in the downtown district and all of that. But yeah, the idea that he's going to be living in his dad's broom closet and following his rules, yeah, I'm feeling for the kid. And I don't speak any Japanese, neither does Sean, and I feel really bad for him when he has to go to school. And how do you go to a school when you don't speak the language? He speaks the language. No, he doesn't. Where? I never got the sense that he does. The teacher's talking to him. He's looking to other students in the class trying to figure out because he's still wearing his shoes. He has no idea that she's saying, put on slippers. No, I think he understands. I took it to mean he didn't know where he was supposed to get them. No, he talks to people. Later, when he's a courier, he'll walk into a bathhouse and have a small dialogue in Japanese. Yeah, by then he's learned a few words. But at this point, I don't think he speaks a word of it. I don't know where he would have picked up fluent Japanese. I mean, (laughs) good point. That's a hard language to learn. It's not a romance language. Nothing like English. No, I had a friend who lived in Singapore for a few years when he was in high school. They had English schools to go to. And the fact that you have Bow Wow in this class, I don't know what his backstory is. I don't know why he's in Japan. He did say he was a military brat. He was moved around just like Sean. So he was stationed various places and this was one of them. Yeah, but I like this school. Like, yeah, when do we ever get to see in an American film what a Japanese public school would be like? And the slippers and the lunchroom and all of this stuff. Little details, I'm loving it. I do too, and surprisingly, I'm enjoying Bow Wow, his first friend, Twinkie, who is a (laughs) huckster, a salesman. He's selling electronics, he's probably lifted from somewhere. He's got Air Jordans before they've even come out. We do know he is like Mike. I think that was his first film. I was just about to say, yes, and the sequel, like Mike too. Lip Nicky from Jerry Maguire. Yes, we know where he got the shoes. I had no idea that there was a sequel to that, but I know Bow Wow from one song. He had like one crossover hit back when he was still Little Bow Wow, and I liked that song, but I hadn't really thought much of Bow in the years since. <laughs> he was Master P's kid. I mean, I, I don't think I ever knew any of his songs. I was just aware that he was an ornament of a of a rapper's life and just assumed that he did kitty movies and then like all People that come up from kitty movies grew up and grew out and did other things. But yeah, I agree. He works as a sidekick here. It's not a particularly important role. I wouldn't say that he's any more important to the plot we're going to get than 
Tyrese was last time. He's no Tej here. He's not hooking him up with much. He's trying to be Tej, though. He's trying to sell the iPods and the computers and everything. But you know what I'm getting off of him? And I didn't, of course, the first time I saw this film. But Jacob, am I the only one getting a whiff of some Jaden Smith here? I feel like we're watching Karate Kid. Either Karate Kid Part 2 or the remake of Karate Kid, where you've got the American kid in trouble. Going over there, he's going to romance the Japanese girl. He's going to get in trouble with the Japanese bully. Down to the fact that the Japanese bully's uncle is going to get involved. This is Karate Kid Part 2, right? I definitely got a Karate Kid vibe off this film. Drifting, I don't know. I guess that's kind of like a crane kick. It's not as cool looking, but cars are doing kicks. Too bad they're not literally kicking each other like they do in Speed Racer. But yeah, there's definitely a Karate Kid vibe here. Maybe, Yeah, maybe Jane Smith from that remake where he actually goes over to an Asian continent to learn karate. They call it out here. I mean, I think at some point it's Han, but he's like, this is no wax on, wax off stuff here to drifting. He's trying to teach him drifting here. They call it out here. They know how similar they're getting to Karate Kid Part 2, and they just wanted to let audiences know. I guess if you call it out, it makes it less true. (laughs) I don't know. They should have done that with Point Break. Yeah, the first film should have had Paul Walker going, yeah, this is a point break moment here. (laughs) He could have asked Vin, what, no Nixon mask to do this heist? (laughs) But this is the movie I was talking about all along. Remember how I was saying I thought it was going to be a teen story about auto racing and that world and that, yeah, maybe there would be a crime element to it, but that it would mostly be about impressing a girl and racing a fast car? We're getting that movie now. That is what this movie is. Most of this movie is Twinkie pulling Sean into this car racing world and showing him how to drive. Because unlike Paul Walker, Sean doesn't have any natural gift for drifting. And one of my favorite moments in this entire movie, maybe just in the Tokyo part, I don't know that this outdoes the opening race, but it's just a small thing. But... Tokyo parking garages, when they go to get Twinkie's car, (laughs) and the thing is a freaking carousel. I love that. Oh my god, it's like a vending machine for your car? That is awesome! You know, it helps me with that context that you gave, Stuart, or where this director's coming from, because I feel like if you're going into this blind, like, this would be some typical Hollywood production where they're just going to take all the weird things about Japan and show it to you, and you hear about the vending machines with panties, or the vending machines, I guess, with cars. I do feel because of this director that, you know, he wants to show off certain parts of this culture, and that it feels more legitimate than if it was Gwen Stefani appropriating Japanese culture for a music video. And this was around the time of Gwen Stefani's Harajuku LAMB line hitting popularity. I mean, it's funny that American pop culture was the rage in Japan, and this was around the time that it became most mainstream. And yet I would have felt like this is pretty niche. This is pretty risky, I would think, to take this franchise out of America, put it in a foreign continent with a new star, a different kind of driving. I mean, to me, this feels like almost a spinoff rather than a sequel. Yeah, I think they thought of it as a reboot. They were starting over with a brand new cast. I'll tell you right now. When they made this entire movie beginning to end, they didn't know Vin Diesel would come back. I can believe that. They took this movie to test audiences with no Vin Diesel. Their thought was, let's reboot this franchise with a new cast, and we'll carry this new cast through the next couple movies. If you're watching this movie because you can't wait to see how Vin is going to factor into the plot, you're going to be pretty pissed, I think. (laughs) Yeah, He doesn't do much here, but he is a surprise. We'll talk about it when we get there, but there's a whole movie before we get there. Yeah. So... 
they thought this was going to be the cast of Fast and Furious 3, Fast and Furious 4. Uh -huh. They thought they were just starting over. And that's why this isn't the Fast and the Furious 3 Tokyo Drift. Ah, okay. Yeah, there is no numeral three here. Three Fast, Three Furious, Tokyo Drift. <laughs> it's younger, too. I mean, it's worth pointing out this kid is not an undercover cop. He's not even in college yet. He's underage. He's too young, I think, to be driving, right? Or definitely to being in some of these clubs. He's 17. He can definitely be driving. In Japan? Really? That's the age? I have no idea. I don't know what the age is in Japan. I thought you meant in the States. I don't know what the drinking age is in Japan. <laughs> This is a younger group. I don't know about everyone in this Tokyo garage when we get there to this first big drifting race, but there's a lot of panties. This is what I thought Fast and Furious was going to be all about. Booty shorts, panties. We're going to get that finally. And you're talking about stereotyping Japan, Jacob. When I see all of these schoolgirl outfits with the panties, that's the moment I feel this movie gets the most stereotypical about Asians, is getting all the Asian schoolgirl fetishes right there. And the cowgirls are fucking hot. I'm not complaining about this part. No, I'm not <laughs> complaining, but by the same token, I feel it's objectifying. Can I enjoy objectification? In a B-movie, this is what you want. Yeah, true, yeah. true. This is a sexist fantasy, and the men are as objectified as the women, so I think we can all just deal with it and, and recognize that this series is about presenting hot people doing dangerous stunts. I'll just say the outfits made me want to go to Japan. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Where I started to cringe was, yeah, this is where the Yakuza come into it. And I'm like, oh, they're going to go there, really? But yeah, this is where I feel like they're hitting notes that are stereotypical Japanese, whereas the first 20 minutes really weren't hitting those notes. And yeah, not that I don't like a good Yakuza film. Again, I like Asian cinema, samurai films. I like 60s and 70s Yakuza films. Sure. I, I thought we were going to get away from that crime element here. I thought this was going to be high school boy races for the girl, and we've been sucked right back into that heist crime type film. Yeah, this is going to be a gangster that's in his 20s dating a girl in high school. This is probably illegal, I'm guessing. This is a weird incestual relationship, though. We'll find out with DK and Neela, like, she was raised by his grandma or something. Like, it's weird. He seems to be very close to be dating her. And the age of consent in Japan is 13, by the way. Wow. Well, she was saved from a life of prostitution by being raised by this family when her mother was killed, or what happened to her? She was killed. Her father was an unknown. The mother, was she a streetwalker? Yeah, she was a prostitute. Yeah. And the similar fate would have fallen Neela here, but instead she was raised by these individuals. I'm not exactly sure how, but it sounds like it's just a different form of prostitution because her stepbrother is also her lover. And this is the DK. Donkey Kong? <laughs> no kidding. I mean, the fact that he goes by DK, I honestly didn't think he had a name until I went to Wiki. And again, I've seen this movie. I only had to watch this one twice with the different things, but I never caught him being called anything other than DK. That's all I wrote down. It's easier to say, right, than Takashi? True. But this guy, I don't know that he brings on much more menace than a high school student. They say he's Yakuza. Later on, they clarify his uncle's Yakuza, yeah. and the uncle just lets him handle this little high school ring and pay his cut, but... He may be on the path to Yakuza, but he is not Yakuza yet. I'm so glad about that. That made me like it more. I'm like, okay, they're not going to push this too heavily. He is a teenager. He is in high school then? 
Is he at the school? I know some of his associates are, but I never see him with the books. I took it that he was not in high school. I, I yeah. got the sense that he was a few years older. Yeah. And we've seen him before. He was the screw-up son in Wolverine that got thrown out of a window. If you remember that? Yep, yep. I looked him up on IMDb and saw other films. He was not memorable in those films to me, but I have seen him before. Honestly, he's an American actor, and he's Asian, so we've seen him in a lot of films. There seems to be a small pool of Hollywood Asian actors. <laughs> yeah, he gets those jobs. He'll be in Jurassic World as well, but he's not the one that I really gravitate to. Even though he is the main heavy, and he's the one that is the Drift King, the one that I think's more interesting is the guy that gives Sean the car to race. Because Sean's cocky. He's like, I know how to race, and we know he knows how to race from that opening. But he knows nothing about these kinds of cars or how to do the drift. And so he is going to need a car and he is going to need to be humbled. And that's what happens here in the garage. And he gets his car from Han. And now Han is my favorite character of this movie. I love the way that Soon Kang plays him. He's constantly cool. I mean, there's this race going on and people are rushing to the elevators to see He's literally eating and just calmly going to the elevator by himself. The way he plays him, there was more than just the ties to this movie. Admittedly, because this is now playing and we do our homework, that would have been enough to make me see better luck tomorrow. But because it was Han who was in that movie, if it was DK or Miramoto coming from a previous film, I wouldn't have been as excited to go see it as I was for Han. Yeah, Han is my favorite character here, too. He's, he is a main character. He doesn't do a whole lot more than teach sean how to drift and give him cars he plays a major part in the plot but his character he's he's not flamboyant he's yeah he's got that quiet cool about him that makes me like him what makes me want to hang out with him yeah that's exactly it is like we finally have an interesting foil for him this is what vin diesel was supposed to be when he was stealing all those tvs and vcrs but yeah this is a guy that has money so he doesn't really care about losing money he doesn't really get that angry that sean wrecks his car he wanted to see what the kid could do the answer is the kid can't drift. <laughs> and while everyone else mocks that, he just uses that to his advantage. He's like, well, now you're going to come work for me. You're going to be my little stoolie and drive me around and get my money from other people around town. Yeah, this isn't the best race, this drift race, but it is one of the funniest. Like, I love watching Sean. He's almost mowing over people. He's just slamming that car into everything. It's a funny scene. It, it's a humbling one for him. And for someone that's been cool so far, I guess this is what you do in storytelling. You got to make them lose. You got to make them have to learn how to do this, whether it's the crane kick or the drift. This is what he's got to learn to do. We're following the story beats of the first film, though, right? Because in the first one, we saw Brian on the early track. We thought he knew how to race. And then he gets in his first race against Dom and the crew. And we see him completely humbled because he blows out his engine. We're following those beats. It's just doing it in a better way. They didn't humble Brian. I mean, he came in second. And as you pointed out in that podcast, Everyone knew how close he came to beating Vin Diesel. So I didn't see that he was humbled. I saw that he was seen as an up-and-comer that was a threat to the big guy. Here, I think it's the absolute right choice to show us that you can be great at one style of driving and be terrible at another. It makes us want to watch growth for Sean. Whereas Paul Walker, well, there wasn't much character there to begin with. Well, this drifting is amazing to watch. Now, when I first saw this film on HBO that day, I thought this was all CGI fakery, that cars couldn't really move like that. Research for this podcast showed me I was mistaken. They actually can do that. 
that's astounding that you can actually do that and make it work like this and that people can go up the parking ramp like this. It's a fun, different style of racing. Justin Lin said, there's only so many ways you can film a race, and we've seen them in the first two films. By adding this style, we're seeing something different than we've seen before. I can't compare it the way Singleton kind of ripped off that first film and redid it. Here, we're seeing something totally new for the rest of the film. It's bizarre. I have trouble getting my mind around it because, yeah, it is kind of like Han. It's cool in its own way, but it doesn't move fast. It just doesn't do what I thought a racing maneuver would be. So it was an adjustment for me. I mean, for the first part of it, I thought it looked kind of silly. And I don't know, it was hard to get into. But by the end of this, I've got to say, the car scenes in this movie are expertly shot. I think Justin Lin does an excellent job filming them and doesn't resort to those cheesy through the car shots and CGI that I felt like the other two did here, or at least I didn't notice them this time. There were a couple. I did notice them. There's a few times the camera does things that are completely impossible. I'm like, okay, they went to CGI for this one. But by and large, they're filming this almost like NASCAR. They're setting up a camera, and the cars are doing the work. That's what it feels like. And and I'll say this. I don't know. At the beginning, yeah, this drifting is cool. Maybe I wanted more CGI because I found that hilarious when that car drifted uphill going up a ramp. I don't know if that was actual CGI or if they actually pulled that off. They pulled that off. See, that's great. I wanted more of that trick stuff. I feel like as we go on and when we watch Sean doing his drift montages and we get to these final races, I I don't know. Maybe I just don't understand the nuances of a good drift it just looks like cars swerving around a lot it didn't hold the appeal that it did at the beginning i'll tell you where it got really weird is when they bring in the love interest and eventually sean is going to want to see her drift and we have this scene where i think it's supposed to be romantic that they go around this mountain together except there's five other cars within like inches of their own (laughs) car like swerving to and fro It would be like going out for a stroll and and finding like five other people like rollerblading right next to you. And yet it was supposed to be intimate and romantic. It was very strange. Artie, you're telling me those were all real? To me, it came off as car CGI. Those were real drift racers. Okay. Maybe I'll have to go watch it again or watch that documentary on drifting to really appreciate it. A lot of it. Yeah, all those cars doing it in sync. It didn't have the appeal to me as if we're just doing a fast race or something like the beginning of this film driving through half-built houses. What they were going through with that is they were trying to make it feel like a dance, having all these cars do it, as it was supposed to be a romantic dance of the cars. Yes, it's not about adrenaline, it's about ballet. It's about synchronized swimming. That's what I'm thinking about looking at that moment. But again, it throws you off. There's so much that's foreign to American audiences in this movie. I can imagine this was probably hard for someone that loved the first two movies to swallow how unusual this one feels. It's definitely got its own moves. I'll just put it this way. I like kung fu films. I like when it's action-packed kung fu. When you're doing, what is it, tai chi, where it's real slow and it's always 90-year-old people doing it? Just not as exciting to me, and that's how (laughs) a lot of this drifting stuff ends up feeling. I half agree with you. I I still like it. I still want to see the old people do the tai chi. But it isn't necessarily what I thought I was getting. And I guess I haven't rectified whether I liked what I got yet. Let me split the difference. I enjoy the adrenalized scenes of the drifting because it is new. I love the parking ramp race here at the beginning. I find the end race to be okay. My favorite race is actually one where they're not drifting very much. And that's in the middle. And we'll talk about it a bit later. But yeah, I like the drifting for what it offers new. But yeah, I kind of miss some of the more relatable to me. (laughs) 
Yes, yes. They have them. As you point out, they're bringing things. There's a love interest here. They do the same thing. And they've never been good at that. We can honestly say Eva Mendez and Jordana Brewster were not huge assets to whatever did work about those movies. They didn't do much more than fulfill a female trophy duty. And this movie, Neela's not much more interesting. They give her a little bit more shading with this dark past. But this actress is a little boring. This romance, eh, it might be the best of the three, but it's not that great. I don't think it lives up to Brian and Mia in the first film, and that's saying something. (laughs) That's saying too much. (laughs) Yeah, I will agree with you there. Neela here just, she doesn't do anything for me. She tries to be mysterious, and then we find out her past, and it's so, it's just so outrageous with the whole, my mom was a prostitute, and I was taken in by the Yakuza. I can't relate with her. I thought she was Kristen Krug from Smallville for like half the movie, too. There's nothing about her that's very distinctive other than she's a Asian-ish woman with a British accent living in Tokyo. I like her backstory, but this romance with Sean, again, like that first film, I'm more into the bromance of Sean and Han and Twinkie than I am in the romance. We finally got that menage a trois then. <laughs> the romance. <laughs> Come on, menage! But I'm not liking that so much, but what really threw me for a loop the first time, but now that I've seen Better Luck Tomorrow, it makes a lot more sense. It's Justin Lin. They downplay it, but all of a sudden, Sean is working for the Yakuza. I mean, they play it off like he's working for Han, but he's going to collect money from the sumo guy, and it's a comedic scene, but play it a different way. He's now working for the Yakuza. He is a mobster. <laughs> yeah, he, he has been forced to be in this gang, you know, as repayment for Han's car. But I thought it was a funny scene. I, I don't know. I don't know if you necessarily get what's going on at first. He approaches this huge dude in a bathhouse. It could go any way at that point. And he gets thrown out. And then the sumo wrestler finally hands over some money and you get it. Oh, he's a collection guy now. This is how Han's going to get him to work for him. It gives them something to do. Otherwise, Han and Sean, they wouldn't have much beyond, you wreck my car, you have to pay me back. This makes it more interesting. They're learning a lot about each other. They're spending time together. Han is putting him in situations where Sean is going to get humiliated. And then slowly but surely, he's also giving him the lessons to get better at drifting so that he can come back strong and beat Morimoto. He's the weird gangster, Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> it's like if yes. Mr. Miyagi got Daniel to sell pot at high school, I teach them karate. That's the thing of it is, I mean, what is they collecting for? I'm assuming drugs. Maybe gambling. Uh, it could be protection money. It could be gambling. Yeah, it could be a lot of different things. But it's not selling Girl Scout cookies here. These guys are now all criminals. Every character here is a criminal. And when Sean's father sees him driving this nice car, I mean, we're seeing a character's descent into a gangster lifestyle. They give him a nice car. He moves out from his dad and starts living with them. This could really, again, play differently be a tragedy about a good kid or a semi-bad kid falling into a gangster lifestyle. I'm not expecting deep drama from these films, but yeah, that could be an interesting story that's more... I want something more than just about the race. The race is how you tell the real story, and it would be nice to get some human drama, something more than just some weird, dumb crime film that we've been given the last two times. Yeah, it's the right ratio. Yes, this is happening, and yes, you can be concerned about this, and yes, it could be... The reason why Sean gets a one-way ticket back to the U.S., back to jail, because this weird arrangement is that if it doesn't work out in Japan, if he's even behind the wheel of a car, 
he is going to be thrown out of the country and thus the only option for him will be a U.S. jail. Yeah, he's got the worst dad in the world. Like, at the beginning, he's like, you were out racing. You're not allowed to do that anymore. And then he just, then he joins a gang and, like, never <laughs> sees his dad again. His dad doesn't seem very concerned. He'll pop up later. I'm not sure why he's standing up for his son and lets him do what he ends up doing. Yeah, the dad's, uh, it's it's sort of a silly character here. But, yeah, he's going to come and save the day by having the car body that they can use to do the final race. But he doesn't have much purpose up until then. He basically puts enough pressure on Sean. Sean has to live in his closet, and eventually Sean realizes he can go and be with his girlfriend in a cool pad. Now, I didn't get this from watching the movie, but let me give you Justin Lin's explanation about the father character. The father character is the path that Sean could be on if he continues to run from his problems. I mean, when we are introduced to the father, there's a hooker there. He doesn't appear to be, even though he's... In the Navy, he doesn't appear to really be an aspiring career military guy. It's a downward path, and if Sean continues to just run from problem to problem and never face up and man up, he'll turn into his dad. That's like a bad life? Like having hookers and like <laughs> living in Tokyo? Oh, I definitely didn't see it that way. And so when, at the end of the movie, Sean decides to take his stand and face the consequences, it's him choosing to be the better man than his father was. And his father becomes proud because he makes the right choice. I didn't get any of this from the film. This is the screenwriter and the director feeding it to me. I'm just going to pass that on because that's what they were going for. I think they failed. I don't necessarily see, you know, a 50-ish man who still has to hire prostitutes and live in a closet as an aspiring life. It's not, oh, I wish I could do that. But by the same token, yeah, I didn't catch him as a pathetic, drunkard character either. What I started to get off this film, just a hair, was the opening of An Officer and a Gentleman with Robert Loggia as Richard Gere's dad. And I thought that's where they would go. And if they wanted to really sell the bad father angle, they would have driven that home more. Maybe I'm referencing too old a film for most of our listeners to get. Rent that movie. I recommend it. But that's where I thought it would go. But it turns out this father isn't so bad. He wants to be a good dad. But you're right. He's not pathetic. He's just, yes, someone you wouldn't want to be. Someone that Sean wants to get away from. Sean wants his freedom. Sean wants his girl. Sean wants to learn how to drift. And yeah, who can blame him? It's fun. I mean, I love that moment where he's speeding 90 and he's like, oh crap, they go past the police. And they don't have cars that can chase them. They're like, yeah, if you go over 80, they'll just let you go by. According to the commentary, that's actually true. Yeah, I believe it. No, <laughs> and again, it's a little detail that lets you know about the world. Whether it's actual true or not about Tokyo, it is true for this world, and it sucks you into this world. I like being in a place that feels foreign and exotic and exciting. It makes the B-movie stuff seem more fresh. I also like the cars in this film. They're different than what we've seen before. They're driving a totally different way. What's with the Hulk car? Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't <laughs> mention Twinkie's car, which, can I get that? <laughs> I figured you'd want it. You, you want big fist imprints in your car? <laughs> oh, man, I see this thing with a green fist and a green foot. I'm like... That kind of looks like the Hulk, and then it rotates 180, and you see the Hulk face, and it's got, like, green fringe and Hulk toys on the dash. And it turns out Justin Lin is a big fan of the Bill Bixby show, and said he saw in Twinkie that kind of rage. We never really see it in the film, <laughs> but that Twinkie would be the quiet Bruce Banner type, but inside of him is a Hulk. It could also be said that Universal still had the rights to the Hulk character, 
And they were releasing the Ed Norton movie the next year. This could be a way of promoting that to their fans. The irony is they're all Eric Bana Hulk toys on that dash. So I think they might just be left around the Universal offices and they were like, can somebody make us forget this movie happened? <laughs> that seems more likely. <laughs> This movie is trash. We don't have any hope for it. Why don't you stick that flop Hulk stuff into this flop third chapter? But the great thing about this is I came into this thinking this was going to be the absolute worst because, yeah, it's being treated so shabbily. What the studio has invested in, it feels like nothing. But the combination of Justin Lin and these actors, and I think to a degree the script, is really giving us the B movie I wanted to be. Guys... I'm having a good time with a Fast and the Furious movie. Is this the low bar that you've said for all Fast and Furious films, or are you having a legitimate good time? No, no, it is the low bar. I mean, I don't think I would watch this movie if I weren't being forced to. But given that I thought I was in prison, this feels like, yeah, I'm in the yard. I get to run around. There's a little bit of room here. There was a fun moment when I was watching the Fast and the Furious part one and just sitting there, and some meta part of me went, I made Stuart watch this. <laughs> I wonder what he'll have to say, because he would never watch this. Never. And yes, I don't know that I would finish it if there weren't a reason to. But in mild doses here, there's a lot to like. This is the flop, though, right? This is the one that didn't make the money. Lowest grossing in the U.S. with only $62 million. Ouch. That's a bomb. What's so surprising to me is this is supposed to be... The one that is absurdly bad, like, that I would make jokes about even though I hadn't seen it, and it's up there with one. The first one, it's not awful. It's nowhere near as bad as two. It's not a joke. Maybe that's a disappointment to me, that it's not absurdly bad, but there is stuff to like here. I'll kind of agree with you, Jacob. I'll put it on par with one. There's nothing in this film as good as the bromance between Brian and Dom, but there's also nothing as bad in this film as the harpooning of semi-trucks. You just have a thing for Vin Diesel. I mean, what Twinkie and Sean have is better than anything that was going on between Vin Diesel and Paul Walker. I'll disagree with that, but I will say none of the movies have an actor of the stature of Sonny fucking Chiba. This was a surprise. I don't really know Sonny Chiba, but I know his reputation. If it wasn't for True Romance, I would have never heard Sonny Chiba's yeah. name. But because of True Romance, I actually sought out the Street Fighter films and saw those back in the 90s, so. Makes you really want to go to a Justin Lin party, right? You could meet Hammer, you could meet Sonny Chiba. Like, that's like the coolest Hollywood party I could think of. Hell, now he's doing Star Trek Chris Pine. Ugh, come on, you're missing my point. I'd rather <laughs> hang out with Sonny Chiba than Chris Pine. I didn't recognize Sonny Chiba, though. I mean, it's been many years since the films I had seen of his. First of all, many years since I've seen them, and second, many years since he made them and turned into an old man. But he didn't want to do this film. He thought he was above bit parts in American movies. Justin Lin really campaigned. They wanted somebody with gravitas who could play this Yakuza lord, finally convinced him to take this role, and it really ups the stakes when he shows up and points out to DK, you're a dumb fuck, because even I can realize from your spreadsheets that Han is ripping you off. What really surprises me about this scene where the uncle confronts DK, again, if you listen to last week, that was a movie for babies, in my opinion. And here, okay, this is a movie for teenagers, really. These are PG-13. The fact that this whole scene, now there's subtitles, 
but they speak Japanese. They're going to expect you to read, and that goes through a lot of this. There are scenes where they just speak their native language. They don't do the broken English thing that you would expect in a lot of films geared towards teenagers. You hate to put it that way, but yeah, you have to be literate to enjoy this movie. No, it's a compliment for this. (laughs) They strive for that authenticity. I have felt that way about several movies where... They don't trust the audience to be able to read the subtitles, and that does piss me off, and I like that they did that here. That's Justin Lin's influence, so I don't know, again, how he got this job, and after this movie tanked, I don't know why they brought him back, but he is really the best director of this franchise thus far, and he's the only director he carried the rest of them until this latest film. Oh, good. Really? He's going to do the sequels? Yeah, they just kept bringing him back. And they wanted him back even for seven, but the timing, he wanted a break after doing four Fast and Furious films in a row. Mm. And he moved on to Star Trek, for Christ's sake, so. Yeah, we'll be discussing him again, but I didn't realize it was going to be next week. But yeah, this bringing in really raises the stakes, and this is when the movie gets dramatic. Because to this point, none of the dramas worked for me. I've enjoyed the party scenes, I've enjoyed the male bonding scenes, the romance didn't work for me. So when DK is going to come up and start shaking Han down and pull a gun and Morimoto's there too and it becomes a life or death stakes car chase all of a sudden this is the first race that had meaning I've often said about films we watch that I need more than a good action scene I need something to invest me in that action scene god damn if this movie didn't do it ejecto cedo's not enough no no I this movie did not lack ejecto cedo <laughs> <laughs> Han's dead by the end of this chase. Isn't that a freaking shock and how he dies? Yeah, that was a shocker that Han car blows up. He's inside of it. Like, I did not expect that, especially again. We couldn't blow Eva Mendez's head off. We had to contrive some reason for her to get on a boat instead of just shooting her when she's an informant. But yeah, someone dies here. It's, you know, I guess we did have that one criminal die with the semi in that second one. But this is a character I actually liked. The character I've liked the most in all three of these films, and he's gone. Yeah, this is a surprise. I never thought that the Yakuza storyline would get so severe here. I thought that they would keep it relatively simple. Maybe there was going to be betrayal and there would be a race. I thought that would be all that it would. But that it escalated into this fight into the crowd, and you have waves of people running out of the way and spinning. Yeah. The best drift scene in the whole movie is where Sean is driving and there's just that crowd of people and they set it up earlier. I guess it was Chekhov's crowd. Yes. <laughs> this intersection is always <laughs> packed and he drifts through the people and they part like the Red Sea for his car and he doesn't hit any of them. Again, it is more like a dance than it is like a fight, but ooh, it was really well done. Yeah, it was his character's whole definition. He wanted to be above those people. He saw them as without a point. He was an aspiring artist, if you could say. The car was his paintbrush. And yeah, I just didn't think that they would take him out here in this movie. That was a surprise. Would DK have killed him, do you think, if he'd caught him? I mean, Han seemed pretty cocky that without him, DK wouldn't even have a Enterprise to run. But keep in mind, it's not the Yakuza who kill Han. It is a completely unrelated driver broadsiding Han that causes his death. Oh, it was? Yeah. Who hit him? I'm going to take the fifth on that. Oh, oh, it's... Oh! Wait a minute. (laughs) Oh! I told you, it all matters. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, two more movies and it'll all be explained. Okay, so Han's not dead. All right, you've let it out of the bag. No, Han died. Okay. Huh. His twin brother's coming back. <laughs> You know what? The suspense won't kill me. I'll find out when I find out. But for this movie, good chase scene, shocking, puts the movie on a higher dramatic stake. We head into, yeah, what is an obvious climax, right? We've got to have the Drift King versus against the Gaijin. Just like Karate Kid Part 2, the uncles have to agree for the two kids to fight for their honor. I mean, all we need is John Cicada. Yeah, this is where the film starts to lose me. This is the climax, like... Okay, Sean's going to go in. He's going to give Uncle Kamada, he's going to give him some money, but he's told he's got to offer something more, and that's where he proposes this race. I don't know. I don't know why a high-level Yakuza would buy into this. I don't know why Sean's dad helps him build this car. Like, I would get my son out of the country at this point with the Yakuza going after him. I get it that this is a race film, and this it's all got to come down to this but I don't feel that film earns this moment. Yeah, if it were a step-up movie, Jacob, it would be a dance-off. I mean, come on, you know, like, it's got to be a race because this is a racing movie, and plot-wise, that makes no sense. That's not how you would atone for this, but it is exactly how you would make a climax for this kind of movie. I really want to see the step-up film where the Yakuza are involved. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. It is a bit of a stretch. I do kind of like, though, The police have impounded all of Han's cars, so they're left without a car, but the police looked at the junker that Sean beat up in that very first race and left it, not knowing it had a good engine, and Sean's dad had been working on a Mustang, and it had no engine, but it had a good body, and they end up, according to the commentaries, all the car people are like, this will never work. But they actually made this work. They got a Mustang running on a Nissan engine. It gives the dad something to do, right? We needed to have that heel. I didn't know how they were going to work that in. The dad can't be happy that his son has not only been racing cars at dangerous speeds, but also fallen in with criminals. I didn't know how it would work out. But he ends up protecting him with a gun and then, yeah, giving him the car that's going to allow him to win the race. Is there some symbolism, though? I'm like, are we now seeing Sean as an American with the heart of the Japanese? He has the honor of a samurai. Yeah, he's got the American car versus the Japanese car, but it has that Japanese engine. It does feel a little last samurai. I didn't really think about it, but yeah, I guess it would be obvious if you did. And the final race... This one is where it gets a little too Crouching Tiger hidden engine for me. It's just... (laughs) You don't like traveling through the cell phones? (laughs) There's just too much dancing with the cars. I do like when it gets intense at the end and it becomes almost like a boxing match to see who can push the other one off of the cliff. But for most of the race, it's a Fast and Furious film. We know DK isn't going to win. That would be a shocker if DK won. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm sitting here watching... Even the first time I watched this film, I'm like, Sean's going to win. There's no suspense, and it's not filmed in an exciting way. So the only question I have is, is he going to kill DK by knocking him off a cliff? Yeah, I disagree with the not exciting way. I liked a few of these shots where the camera would literally go over the cliff. You'd think it was the car. You thought it was a POV shot, and then you'd see the cars at the lower levels going by. I 
I thought there was some artistry in the way that the scene's put together. I like that it was at night. I like the location, the waterfall and all of that. I mean, there were things that were counterintuitive. and it, There were less people in midriffs and the kinds of Fast and the Furious street racing that I would have expected. It was old people watching. I guess the young people were on their cell phones there too. And speaking of old people, I love the Yakuza who initiates the race and he's lost both pinkies and ring fingers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the classic Yakuza punishment there. But when you say you like that the camera drifted off the cliff, I took that as a cheat because you're seeing a POV shot of the car, you go over the cliff, and then you get back to the car and the car's still on the street. To me, that's cheating. That's telling me the car's going off the cliff. Fooled you! It did fool me. I didn't mind being fooled. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could say there's more artistry here than Singleton (laughs) did in that last film, and that's something to be praised. I'm just not absorbed by this final race. I just, yeah, the outcome's obvious. And again, this drifting, it just it hasn't enthralled me. If they were drifting uphill with this mountain instead of downhill, maybe that would have been something. But maybe I just don't like ballet. You, you keep calling this a dance, and I'm just not that absorbed with it. Yeah, it's one of the least interesting parts of the movie. And then again, have the climaxes ever been good? I don't know. Yeah, that first one, that was what I praised, was that big rig scene with Vince hanging from the rope. I mean, that was a great climax. The stunt was good. The moment was not. Well, these are all stunts, though. These are all stunt races. And so, yeah, give me a good stunt. My point is the plot was terrible at that point. It wasn't like I was into that moment. I just thought, yeah, that was really great that the actor was hanging in there. I guess my point is formula movies end formulaically, and this one is not going to subvert that formula. But a well-shot action scene with some surprises like that race through the streets of tokyo with the four cars and han getting hit that had unexpected surprises this feels rote to me and again because it is this more ballet kind of drifting versus high intensity it's only at the end where i start to really get engaged and wonder what's happening and they do knock dk off a cliff they pull their punch he lives But that was the only surprise to me is that DK takes a fall. And then I do like how Sean's going down the next level and DK is falling in front of him. Yeah, that was cool. It almost hits him crossing the finish line. Yeah, I mean, that was a nice surprise. He he drops right in front of him. Sean kind of looks shocked and just drives by him. But if you're looking for surprises, no, it doesn't come in the climax. The hero wins the race, gets the girl. He's the new Drift King. But I did not know, unlike you, Arnie, that Vin Diesel was coming back for any kind of cameo. Yeah, here's what happened is this movie, apparently the test audiences didn't consist of any of us on the podcast because this thing tanked with test audiences. The studio went in with just terrible expectations. And so they needed something to punch this up. They needed a hook. So they went to Vin Diesel who wouldn't do it for money. He would not do this. He'd do it for a car? He wanted that Hulk car, right? No, he (laughs) wanted the rights to Riddick. He wanted to make a third Riddick film, and Universal owned the rights and wouldn't part with them and wouldn't make a third one. It's because of this cameo that we got the recent Riddick film. Oh, well, that's kind of honorable. I didn't see the recent Riddick film or even the one with Judi Dench that bombed, but okay. Well, cool that he had principle to it. He just didn't do it for a cash. 
grab. Well, I mean, he did it for a rights grab. He had no intention of returning to this franchise at all. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Yeah. He did a little cameo that's going to spark and get people like you to be curious and watch it on cable because they're not going to go to the movie theater <laughs> for it. But <laughs> but it gives him the opportunity to make a series and continue a franchise he obviously did have a lot of affection for. And... I found it interesting in retrospect that they say he considered Han family. It did seem interesting that if we're going to hook those kids that don't want to see this Tokyo Drift film, hey, how about this 10 seconds with Vin Diesel at the very end? That should get him in. I don't see that working. But yeah, here's the film I thought was the joke of the franchise. But no, here's the one that's building the continuity. Like uh, that second one, you're saying it matters. I feel like we've tossed that out. Let's connect the first one, the third one. Who knows what happens? from here on, but I I did find it weird that Tokyo Drift, this is where we're really building the Fast and Furious universe by bringing Vin back in here, calling Han family. Han, he's got a stash of DVD players that I guess Dom needs to get to. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just see where it goes. Blu-ray players? (laughs) I'm in much more suspense about what color these errors are going to be for the first time in this retrospective. Jacob Stewart, can you possibly recommend Tokyo Drift? <laughs> Jacob? Yeah, well, I'll put it this way. I struggled with this one about as much as that first Fast and Furious film. A lot of this, there's things that are definitely better. We get a location film. We get some interesting sights, different culture. We get better acting than Paul Walker with Lucas Black. Han, best character in the series thus far. But again, this plot, I think it's a better plot than the typical undercover crime thing we've seen. It's still a crime film, but it's getting initiated into a gang. I don't know. It's the racing, though. I liked it early on, but it doesn't hold my attention throughout. And I feel that that's what these films are about, about the fast cars doing cool things. And I don't know if they're that cool. And then this last act, really, I just don't feel any investment here. There's no tension for me. I don't understand why a race is what this all comes down to. So it's a weak, not recommend, but still a red arrow. Stuart. Oh, yeah. Easy one. Green arrow. And who thought I was going to give this series any of them? Not me. But I had a low bar, people. Cool stunts, cool driving, and give me something extra. I don't care what it is. I know this is going to be a rote plot with boring romance, silly villains, what have you. Give me the hot sauce in the back seat. It all comes down to condiments for you. It kind of does. It's about flavoring. And yes, this movie has a lot of flavor. By setting it where it does, by having the characters that they do, by having the actors that they do, this is a much more appealing stew than the last two movies. Far, far outpaces. It is the fastest one by far of the three as far as getting to the heart of what a good B-movie does. Now, is this movie one that I love? I'm probably making it sound like I liked it a lot more than I actually did. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a formula for a franchise that is not my thing. But keep in mind, I've set the bar. We're grading on a curve. For me, this is a solid recommend for those that want to watch an unusual auto racing B picture. For those that don't think they're going to like any Fast and the Furious movie, I'd say start here. Skip the first two. See if you like it. You couldn't go forward if you didn't see part one, at least. Skip two. This one, I kind of had to fight with it because I'm with Jacob that these races weren't the most exciting by and large. I didn't think that any of the characters here were as strong as the ones we'd met before. And given that that includes Paul Walker, that is really a damning statement. It's telling that 
of all the movies we've seen, this is the one that has the least returning characters. DK, Sean, Sean's girl, Twinkie. No, sorry, guys. What? I'm outraged. Outraged. But there's some fun stuff here. There's a good, good soundtrack to this. Yes. Best soundtrack of the three. You got to admit. Barracuda. Yeah, absolutely. Between Kid Rock to the all the music in Tokyo, it made me go out and honestly, the Fast and the Furious films expanded my taste into international pop. Because of that first one, I got into some Latin hip hop that wasn't on the actual soundtrack. I bought it hoping for the Latin hip hop that was featured in some scenes and then had to go out on iTunes and explore on my own. And this one got me into some Asian hip hop kind of music. So I really do agree. Best soundtrack of them all. And I'm going to give this a green arrow. My recollection coming in was that I might give it a brown arrow because Drift King is just a stupid title. Even if there is a real Drift King, I'm sorry, you picked a stupid name, Monarch. (laughs) I always think about Burger King. Am I just hungry? I I think I'm still in Tyrese mode. (laughs) There's some cheese in this film, but there's also some good things in this film. It's getting the series on the right racetrack. And I think a big key to that is Justin Lin. And he's doing four Fast and Furious films in a row, three through six. And obviously Universal saw something in him too, because in the next film, there probably wouldn't have been another one. There was three years in between, but they were able to get the majority of the crew from the first one back and bring it back to basics, but keep Justin Lin on board. And here with Tokyo Drift, They also set a pattern. All these movies are going to start taking place in different locales. We had L.A., we had Miami, we had Tokyo. And for the next few movies, we're going to different cities and different countries as well. I think that's going to be a strength brought by Lynn. Oh, cool. Like a Bond movie then. Yes, very much so. All right. Well, I can roll with a Bond movie. I feel comfortable that, yeah, yeah, maybe Paul Walker and Vin Diesel are coming back. That's, to me, bad news, but that Justin Lin is coming back? Yeah, that gives me hope that we could get some more Green Arrows in my immediate future. Yeah, perhaps a better director, at least for this franchise, will help their acting and their characters. Honestly, if it wasn't for Part 4, I don't know that we'd be doing a retrospective. I don't know that there would still be making the movies because again tokyo drift the lowest grossing domestic fast and furious film with less than half of even too fast too furious for shame for shame people i mean that's just you can't explain that that people would pay double the money for that turd on wheels no sense and yet the next film is going to start correcting that and become One of the top grossing films, admittedly it's in the teens, but the top grossing films of 2009. That's Fast and Furious. Not to be confused with The Fast and The Furious. Or Too Fast, Too Furious, or Tokyo Drift. It's now so fast they don't have time for grammar. (laughs) Well, we'll see if it gets any green arrows from us. But also, one more time, let me remind the listeners, we need some green from them. Because that Kickstarter... Last full week, we cross the finish line before we even get to Fast Five on this, guys. We need you to head to the Kickstarter page and pledge. And look at the prizes we're giving away. You can get one of the last DVD sets we're ever going to mail out. You can get all of our archived podcasts. You can get every donation podcast we do into the future. 
You can make Stuart dance like I do. You could pick whatever movie you want him to watch and make him watch it. <laughs> hmm. I might have to <laughs> invest my own money to stop whatever that could end up being. <laughs> it just has to be commercially released, but hell, Manos the Hands of Fate got commercial release. <laughs> Hey, I could have some fun with a really trashy movie. Yeah, let's bring it on. But keep in mind, the really important thing here is that we get to be able to deliver our underrated movies. I mean, how much fun would it be to share the kinds of movies that we love that we don't have room for in our franchise-heavy podcasting here at Now Playing? That's what I'm really looking forward to in this book. And look, I understand our donors are fantastic. They've supported us. We've already gotten the funds to make the book happen. I am eternally grateful. I can't ask for more from those fans that donate again and again and keep our show running. Not only for this Kickstarter campaign, but every time we need a donation drive to keep the show going, these fans show up. I'd just like to take a moment to talk to everybody else. To all the people that are listeners, but aren't budgeted, or just can't find the funds to donate to Now Playing. I hear you. There are many things that I participate in. I watch NPR, news, I listen to songs on the radio and then don't buy the album. Sometimes you just can't support everything that you're passionate about. And we appreciate you as listeners. What I am asking is for all those that never plan to donate to Now Playing for our spring donation, fall donation, or anything that we might have offered, to just consider throwing a dollar, literally one American dollar, into the hat. If half of the people that listen to our show did that, we would blow past our largest stretch goal. And that's what I really want you just to consider, is that we don't want $10, $15. Now playing, you haven't budgeted that for us, and I understand and respect that. But if you value anything that we've done, if you think we've contributed to your life at all, $1 would go a great deal in getting us to create the book the way that we hope to. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, it really does add up. And you might have noticed over the weekend, we had some downtime. Our They Live podcast hit number one. I know how many listeners are out there. And Stuart's right. If 50% of you gave $1, it would just blow us past every goal. Get a printed book, get the audio book, and give you a chance to learn more about our tastes. You know how we feel about the movies we review here, but what movies do we love? What movies influence our view of films? What movies haven't you seen that you could really enjoy? That's what we want to bring to you with this book already in an ebook form, hopefully in a hardcover printed form and an audiobook form. And again, yes, everyone who's donated, thank you so much. You guys just rock. We have one more full week, so let's see if we can do that. Hit the Nas! <laughs> Stephen King has his dollar babies. I'm asking my dollar babies to come out. Just let us know that we matter at all with just a small chunk of change you can throw in the hat. Whatever you can spare, believe me, enough little donations will go a long way to making our wildest dreams come true with this book. So thanks in advance. Let's do it. One more week. And we'll be back in one more week with our review of Fast and Furious, because that's how we roll. Por hoy estar donde estoy Vivo hace 
Father, we give thanks for all the choices we've made because that's what makes us who we are. Let us forever cherish the loved ones we've lost along the way. And most of all, thank you for fast cars. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You tell your boss exactly who did this. Tell him there's more coming. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Fast and Furious movie review. You gotta get out of here. I ain't running anymore. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find more movie reviews, including Pitch Black, Rambo, Robocop, The Avengers, and hundreds more. You say what? This just went from Mission Impossible to Mission and Freaking Sanity. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You're in. There's always room for family. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Like a whole lot of vaginal activity to me. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Nice See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. I'll see you soon, Toretto. Your pockets ain't nervous. Ours are empty. We hungry. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. You got the best crew in the world standing right in front of you. Give them a reason to stay. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. You don't realize how much you appreciate something until somebody takes it away. Everybody take a real good look. This is what you call mutual respect. All right, let's clear out. Anybody down for somebody? Now Playing's Fast and Furious series is edited by Heath, Casper, and Arnie. Let's put all this mess back together. That's going to take a while. Then you better get started. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Why me? Because you got the biggest mouth. That's the damn show. Now Playing is not affiliated with Universal Pictures or the makers or distributors of these films. The film discussed in this podcast is the intellectual property of its copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You see, I got a problem with authority. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just because you know how I ride doesn't mean you know me. Show me how you drive, I'll show you who you are. Now playing as a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Money will come and go. We know that. The most important thing in life will always be the people in this room. Right here. Right now. Salute me, familia. But at school, Sean makes friends with Twinkie. Bow wow. <laughs> Are you even using English at this time? <laughs> you guys don't know Little Bow Wow? Oh, no, I do. Yeah, no, he's no longer little.
<laughs> yeah, it, this was around the time I actually saw him go on Regis and Kelly and go, no, it's just Bow now. It's not Little Bow Wow. And because Regis, you know, being an old man, was just like, Lil, you're Little Bow Wow. That's all he could really say to the rapper. But back to this plot, <laughs> instead of this horrible digression about Regis Philbin. <laughs> Who is the avatar of everything cool. I'm surprised he knew who Bow Wow was. He didn't. That was the whole problem. Yes. Yeah, the producer told him, yeah. Yeah, the key, someone wrote the cue cards with little. Little. Kelman said it's a little Bow Wow, and that's all he could do. Yes. But at school, Sean makes friends with Twinkie, Bow Wow, and starts to... <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound like a dessert in Japan? Twinkie Bow Wow. The fact they start calling him Twink, too, in this movie, that's got a whole thing. <laughs> it's just weird to say Twinkie Bow Wow. It's like Twinkie Bow Wow. It's yes. like the porno music. Bow Twinkie Bow Wow. <laughs> I'm not going to say that line again. The editor is just going to have to splice. Because I can't do it without laughing. <laughs> We can honestly say Eva Mendez and Jordana Brewster were not huge assets to whatever mate. Well. <laughs> you said huge asses. <laughs> <laughs> Eva Mendez does have a good ass. This could be a tragic story. This could be like, what's his name from Leprechaun in the Hood? <laughs> You're right. It's exactly like what's his name and Leprechaun in the Hood. You're saying Sean's turning into a, a his transformation into Yakuza is like that dude turning into a Leprechaun. Okay. No, not Leprechaun in Vegas. Oh, no, oh, oh that that's Vegas. I'm thinking of the aspiring rapper that ended up being. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's right. Yes. Don't, only donors need to know about that. <laughs> Mixed up my leprechauns there. Let me rephrase that. Yeah, why don't you pick a higher <laughs> target? Not hard if leprechauns are yeah, starting. right? <laughs> Could it be as good? Dare to dream. Of an officer and a gentleman with Robert Loggia as Richard Gere's dad. Maybe I'm referencing too old a film for most of our listeners to get. Uh, you're referencing a movie I've never seen, so... you never seen An Officer and a Gentleman? No. You, you wow. have seen so much random, obscure shit. But the movie <laughs> that won Louis Gossett Jr. his Oscar... All right, yes. Yeah, Lou Gossett. <laughs> you're right, I've seen Jaws 3D. I've seen Punisher. <laughs> but poor Lou, I haven't seen the one... <laughs> I saw him in Roots. He was good in Roots. But you're right. I haven't given his due. Poor Lou. I never have given Lou his due. What about, what was it, Iron Eagle? Wasn't he in that? Yeah, I've yeah. seen a couple of them. <laughs> Me too. Oof. A couple! But you haven't seen an officer and a gentleman. <laughs> and that's a really powerful opening. My metaphor was really good here. My yeah, no, it was. <laughs> well. Go back to your leprechaun metaphors. <laughs> yes. At least those we've reviewed, the listeners have followed us. If it wasn't for True Romance, I would have never heard Sonny Chiba's yeah. name. But yeah, because exactly. of True Romance, I actually sought out the Street Fighter films and saw those back in the 90s. So. <laughs> Jacob, do you know Sonny? Not by name. The derisive laughter at me talking about the Street Fighter films. <laughs> <laughs> Street Fighter. No, but it's not based on the movie. 
It was like 70s oh, Kung oh. Fu flicks. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about the video game movies. <laughs> no, 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 no. Street Fighter, oh, son okay. of Street Fighter. Oh, okay, okay. Never mind. I thought you were... <laughs> it's something that Tarantino will tell you is one of the best movies of all time. I'm like, what What did he do? Would he play Honda or something? <laughs> okay, never mind then. Okay, has the derisive laughter. I get it. <laughs> yeah, wrong uh, Street Fighter. So it, it's a weak recommend, but still a red arrow. So a weak not recommend, you mean? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm like, I didn't understand what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> a weak recommend, but a red arrow. Hmm, can I do that? I, there are so many movies I'd love to do that too. <laughs> you don't know how many movies I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll recommend it so no one gets angry at me, but I didn't like it. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I recommend it and red arrow it. And we hope you will. And next week, see ya. Does that make sense? And until next week, see ya. All right, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, huh? Did I hear that correctly? (laughs) I was trying to, like, word something in, like, see ya at the Kickstarter page. Oh, I see. Okay. I thought it was like a broken, untranslated (laughs) Japanese expression.